You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you guys so much um, for joining us this morning. Um, I can't say how how much joy it's brought me this morning, just even though it's through technology and not in person, just to be able to laugh about Jess Parker's <laughs> profile picture together and just uh, the community that we get to have, even if it's just through technology. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being here. Um, thank you for community. So this morning, um, I wanna ask you, what what do you see when you say the word, when I say the word justice? Um, just take a moment, think of an image in your brain of what, what, what pops in there. For some of you, maybe you think of a court and a judge. Maybe for some of you, you imagine protesters marching the streets. Um, maybe some of you even roll your eyes because justice is kind of a buzzword in our culture today. and especially if you throw the word social in front of it. Justice can be a really loaded word, and there are a lot of connotations that come with the word justice. Um, it may seem glamorous, it might seem trendy, it might seem political. And these are all opinions that are tied to how we all may see or view justice. Um, but the fact that I want us all to know about the word justice today is the fact that justice is actually biblical. God cares deeply about justice, and it is rooted in scripture. Talking about justice might make some of us uncomfortable, um, but it's an, a necessary conversation to have because of how deeply God cares about it, that it is rooted in scripture. And if we're to call ourselves Christians, then it's an important conversation that we should be having with each other and ourselves with God. What does God say about justice? How does he show that he cares about it? So that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. We're gonna talk about justice. And I want you to know that I know that um, there are so many different emotions tied to it, um, depending on your context and on your experiences. And I'm, I want you to know that I've, um, I've prayed over that um, this morning for us as, as we hear what God has for us in scripture. So I have been racially profiled um, by Border Patrol agents um, who assume that I must be in this country illegally because the color of my skin is brown. Um, in fact, I've only ever had negative experiences with Border Patrol, and I just, I assumed that that was the norm. I assumed that that was how um, Border Patrol agents were supposed to act, that the harassment I received was pretty normal. Um, I actually didn't even realize that I was being racially profiled until I was driving with my husband, who was white, and we were stopped at, we were going through a border checkpoint, and we did something that maybe some of you have experienced, where our car starts to pull up and we're rolling, we roll down the window and we get the wave before the car even really comes to a stop. And I was, I was, I was truly surprised. Um, I. I was confused. Why aren't they stopping us? Why aren't they searching us? Why aren't they interrogating us? Um, and in, in my surprise, my husband was actually surprised. He was at the time, my boyfriend, not quite yet my husband, but he, he was surprised that that was an experience I'd had. Um, 
and it opened up a really good conversation for us about how I may experience things differently than he does because of who I am based on compared to who he is. The truth is injustice happens in our world and the injustices I've experienced here with this example, with the, the Border Patrol and in se several other instances in my life, they're pretty minor compared to some of the other injustices that others in this world may be facing. And sadly, there are just so many examples I could give. There racial injustice, economic inequality, sex trafficking. I could, unfortunately, I could just go on and on. But the question I have for us today is what is our response to justice and injustice as people of God? How are we to respond? We've been in a series in the book of Nehemiah. Um, just to recap for some of you, um, we were, we've been learning from about the Israelites and their rebuilding wall and they just keep facing opposition after opposition. Um, and we're coming out of chapter, chapter four when they were facing a physical threat from an external threat. And what we're going to see as we get into chapter five here is that the external threat has now actually turned to an internal threat, that the threat is no longer from the outside, but is from, with the, um, from within. So if you guys could follow along with me, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Nehemiah 5, starting at 1, and it says this. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish kin. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. We must get grain so that we may eat and stay alive. There were also those who said, we are having to pledge our fields, our vineyards, and our houses in order to get grain during the famine. And there were those who said, we're having to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay the king's tax. Now our flesh is the same as that of our kindred. Our children are the same, or our children are the same as their children, and yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been ravished. We are powerless, and our fields and vineyards now belong to others. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After thinking it over, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are all taking interest from your own people. And I called a great assembly to deal with them and said to them, as far as we were able, we have bought back our Jewish kindred who have been sold to other nations. But now you are selling your own kin who must be bought back by us. They were silent and they could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us stop taking of interest. Restore to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the interest on money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore everything and demand nothing more from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them take an oath to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out everyone from house and from property who does not perform this promise. Thus may they be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. And the pe people did as they promised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, um, I pray that um, 
you speak to us in this old book, um, that we can, we can learn something about you in it, that we can learn about the character of you, that you are a just God. Would you open our hearts and soften them to the words that you have this morning for us? In your name we pray, amen. So a physical attack may have been kept at bay in chapter four, but here in chapter five, what we're seeing is greediness has actually infiltrated. You see, it takes people to build a wall and these people had to leave their normal jobs, their, their lives in order to start building this wall, which left many families without their main breadwinner for eight weeks. Uh, this is something that any army brat or military spouse or anything of that like probably knows pretty well. Uh, for me, my, my dad, he was in the army for 20 years. Um, and in his 20 years, he took two tours to Iraq and each time that he left, he was gone for a whole year. And in addition to that, he would have to do um, field trainings and he'd be gone for weeks at a time. And so every time that he left for that whole year or for those weeks, it was up to my stepmom to wrangle three wild children all on her own. You know, every meal, every soccer game, every, every, every fever, every doctor's appointment, it was just her. She was on her own. Um, and it's really only now as a parent that I really begin to understand how really hard that must have been. Um, I, um, anytime my husband leaves for even just a week, I get a little panicky inside. Um, so the, the idea of um, and such an extended amount of time being without my husband is just really scary to me. Um, but as hard as that was for my stepmom to have to go through that, we had a promise and a guarantee that um, the people in this story don't have, and that's the promise of paycheck, and that's the promise that our home would be our home and would be there, and we would have our family, and there weren't any extreme measures we would have to be taking in order to keep those things. We were very, very lucky. For the Israelites, it went beyond the fact that a member of their family was out of their home. You see, it was... It was more like the addition to a storm that was already brewing. There were already things happening and the absence of, of the breadwinner of their family was more just, just another thing to pile on to what's going on in their lives. See, a drought and a famine had actually hit and food supplies were scarce and supplies were low and there, weren't, there wasn't, just wasn't a lot of grain available, the things that people need to survive. Um, in addition to that, there was the king's tax, and it had increased. And in an attempt to be able to meet the, the increased taxes, some people needed to take out a loan on their fields in order to pay for the increased tax. But then that created greediness in money lenders who saw this as an opportunity to get some more money and to uptick the interest rates. And so what, what we have are people who can't afford to bring put food on the table. There, there isn't a lot of food available and the food that is available, the prices have all inflated. So in an attempt to do that, they take out a loan. And then their loans, interest rates are now increased and they can't meet that. And so then some people in such a dire situation are left having to sell either themselves or their children into slavery just to survive. Although not as extreme, when I read through this and when I think of this, it sounds a little familiar to me. Um, you know, supplies are scarce. There's a crisis. People can't afford their homes. They can't afford the things that they need. 
to me, this is all a little reminiscent of our current pandemic. Um, back in April, when we, you know, lockdown was kind of at its height, unfortunately, we're, cases weren't quite at their height as they are now, but when we were all in lockdown, greedy people decided that they saw a market for face masks and they took the face mask, this piece of cloth that was important for doctors, nurses, health people in the healthcare fields, people in our country who needed to be protected, all of us here. They decided to take those masks and to increase the price by 14 times the normal amount. And that and face mask is just one one element of prices that have been inflated. You know, people also panic bought. Um, I'm sure we all remember going to the grocery store and not being able to find essential items. I I couldn't find bread for weeks. And let me tell you, as the parent of a child who really likes peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, it's really hard to be without bread. But jokes aside, I, I was very privileged that I was able to go to several different grocery stores, that I was able to look for the items I needed, that I live in an area where I'm surrounded by probably four grocery stores within a four mile radius. Like, that is a privilege in itself. Um, but there are people who have struggled to put food on their table. There are people who, in our pandemic, um, can't make their rent or their mortgage mortgages. They're losing their jobs. It's hit the poorest communities the hardest. COVID is just an addition though to an already brewing storm for the poorest in our, in our country. Things like lack of access to healthy food, insufficient insurance coverage, living paycheck to paycheck, these are all issues that um, the poorest in our country have been dealing with for decades. But COVID has amplified that and has just been an addition to, like I said, an already brewing storm. Dr. David Acosta, who is the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer of the Association of American Medical Colleges said this of COVID. Communities that are marginalized, that are under-resourced or underserved will always suffer more during a crisis like this. His words are just as applicable to, to us today as they are to the Israelites. The marginalized will always suffer more during a crisis. Once greediness had took root, it allowed for a system to fall into place, a system that set up poor people who couldn't afford their basic needs to have to take out loans that they couldn't pay back, and it trapped them in a cycle so that when eventually they couldn't afford the the their food, their livelihood, they couldn't afford these payments. And so then they were forced to sell themselves or their children into, um, into slavery. And I, I just wonder how, how much this cycle repeated itself. How long did it take to get out of that poverty? Did it end for certain families where every single member of their family was then in slavery because they just couldn't get out of this pit, out of this cycle? And so the people cried out, the cry of a mother watching her children starve. The cries of a family who've lost their home and they don't have anywhere to go. The cries of a daughter who has been sold. They cried out, when will this stop? When will this end? And so in verse six, Nehemiah, he says, I was angry when I heard their outcry. I was angry 
I think that there's a taboo around anger in Christianity. It's almost like it's the black sheep of emotions. But I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes anger is a good thing. Sometimes anger is an appropriate response to injustice. Sometimes anger is necessary. When you turn on the news and you hear that there's been another mass shooting, be mad. When you find out that children are being kept in cages at our border, be mad. When you hear about an innocent black woman who's been shot and killed in her own home from a police raid that's gone bad, you should be mad. You should be mad. Anger is an appropriate response to injustice. But anger is not enough. In verse 7, Nehemiah, he says, after thinking it over, I found this to be really profound and the mark of a really great leader. Nehemiah, he thought this over. He didn't let his anger just take the front seat. He didn't let it drive him to make irrational decisions, poor decision-making. You know, if any, if any of you have ever had to apologize after a fight with your spouse or your loved one or a friend um, for how your behavior came out in your anger, you probably know what I'm talking about here. He could have ran up to those nobles and officials and he could have screamed in their face, how dare you, you're being cruel. What are you doing to your people? He could have screamed, he had every right to. He was angry, he, what they were doing was evil, it was cruel. It was cruel to their own people. But how do you think they would have reacted to that? They pro it, would have, it would have limited their ability to really hear and to be able to respond. I know that if I were to be faced with a screaming person in my face, my reaction will always be defensiveness and blame shifting. But Nehemiah, in his wisdom, he thinks it over. He, he sits and he thinks, how am I going to appropriately respond to this to seek the freedom of the oppressed? How do I, how do I act in a way that frees the people who need it? He doesn't just act at the whim of his emotions. So Nehemiah, he publicly addresses this issue. It wasn't enough to discuss this privately. He had to take it out publicly. And this did two things. One, it, it showed the oppressed that something was being done. And two, it, it made the officials and the nobles come face to face with the poverty that they themselves have created. I think it's really easy for some people to be able to block out um, some of that. If you kind of box in emotions and you don't have to come face to face with it, it's easy to live with some of the things that you've done or maybe ignored. And in coming face to face with it, it, it creates a different um, response. Secondhand information just isn't enough to, to address this issue and Nehemiah knows that. And so he makes it his case to them. He points out the irony that what they're doing, they just got done. Not just, they they brought bought back their kin, their fellow um, fellow countrymen from other nations, and now they have to do it again. But this time they have to buy them back from their own their own people. And he's pointing out the irony and the cruelty in that, and reminding them that these are your kin. Some of your translations may say these are your brothers. This is your family. These are your people. Do you not see how cruel this is that you're doing this to your own people? And then he asked them, shouldn't you walk in fear of our God? 
He's asking them to, rem to remember who their God is and their God's character. And that if they are to be reflections of God's character, that it, when they sin in their greed, that it is actually dishonoring to the character of God. And so then Nehemiah, he, he demands that they undo all their wrongdoing. And their response honestly kind of surprised me at first when I first read it. They say, we will. And I wonder, I wonder if they had to pause before we will. Like, did they have to think about it? Like, man, we're going to be out on our money. I guess, I guess we'll have to do this. Or were they convicted immediately? Or did they have to say yes, kicking and screaming? Maybe that's why Nehemiah had them take an oath right then and there. Like, I'm going to need this in writing, guys. I need you to, to keep this promise. No vague promises here. So what we learn from this passage in Nehemiah is how we should respond to injustice. But before we can even begin to unpack how we're going to respond to injustice, I think it's important for us to address why. Why do we care about this? Why should we care? Why should we respond to injustice? And there are plenty of reasons we might feel that we should, because um, we should do what's right, moral obligation, fairness, you know, maybe you have yourself have been on the receiving end of injustice and you want to see that injustice come to an end. And all those things are good reasons for why we should want to see injustice stop. But those are also reasons that anybody could have. And we are people who claim Jesus as our Lord. And in doing so, the reason that we should care about injustice should always be rooted in the fact that we follow a just God who cares deeply about justice. It is a character of him. We, he is just God, he is a loving God, he's a merciful God. And those are actions that we should reflect in our own lives. So that is why we should care. It is woven throughout the Bible, throughout scripture of stories of our just God. And we see it in the person of Christ. We see it in the way he loved the poor, we see it in the way that he treated women. We see it in the miracles he performed. We see it in the way that he, the people that he hung out with. It is clear and evident that we serve a God who cares about justice. And so if we are to be followers of Christ who claim him, and we are to care about his image bearers, then we are to care about the way his image bearers are treated. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he said this, any religion that professes to be concerned with the souls of men and is not concerned with the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a dry as dust religion. I don't want my religion or my faith or my community to be dry. I want us to flourish. I want us to grow. I want us to be an evident marker that we are God's people, a flourishing people. And in order to do that, we need to care about the image bearers of God, and we need to care about how they are treated, and we need to act on that. We need to act justly. We need to do justice. So if we are to be people who care about injustice, how then should we react? How then should we respond? I think that Nehemiah has modeled it perfectly for us here in scripture. First, he listens, then he sits, and then he acts. And we like to try and skip ahead to the acting part, but it's very, very important that we listen first. 
Because when we listen, that's when we can hear the injustice. There, I'm sure there's many injustices I personally don't even know about because I haven't taken the time to listen, but we must listen first and listen to people who experience things differently than you. Listen, not critical or analytical listening. Listen. Listen without formulating a defense in your head. Listen without your bias. Listen without thinking of how you're gonna respond, but just listen. Listen to the cries. What are they saying? What are they crying out? Who are crying out? Listen. Can you hear them? The second thing we're to do is we're to sit, which I'm sure for some of us may feel like the last thing we want to do. We, we want to take action. Gabby, didn't you just hear? There are people out there hurting. We got we to gotta fix it. We got to solve it. But we got to take the example of Nehemiah and we got to sit with it. We got to sit in our anger with it. It doesn't say that, his, that Nehemiah's anger disappeared, but what he did is he was able to sit it with his anger and focus it and control it and to take that passion and to use it wisely. So it's important that after you've listened, you sit and you reflect. Learn from what you've heard. Pray about what you've heard. Sit with it with God. God, how do I respond to this? Tell me. But first sit. Sit and listen. Sit and listen and reflect. There's a nonprofit organization um, founded by Latasha Morrison, and it's called Be the Bridge. And Be the Bridge, Be the Bridge's goal is to inspire a community and equip a community who share a common goal of creating healthy dialogue about race. I recently joined a Be the Bridge Facebook group um, in an attempt to just learn more about racial reconciliation. And when I joined, I found that they have two rules in the group. The first rule is that you have to be silent for three months, silent. And silent meaning that you can't post on any uh, post on there, you can't comment in anybody else's posts, you just have to sit and listen and learn. And then the second rule is within those three months of um, silence, you have to do learning modules. You have to sit, be quiet, and learn from the people who, who have experienced this, who know. And it's learning modules that were created by Latosh Morrison, who wrote a book, um, if you're interested in reading, I recommend it, called Be the Bridge. Um, but you, you have to sit and listen and learn and be quiet and listen and learn. It's so important. And I think that this is a posture that we should take in our sitting. You don't have to be silent for three whole months. It's a long time. <laughs> Unless that's the, the time that God is calling you to be silent in. But it is very important that we take the time to sit and to learn. Learning and gathering information. It's important so that before you can speak about something, you have all the information and you know what you're speaking about. The last step is to act. It's the stuff that we like to jump ahead to, but also I think some people might get stuck on the step before this. They wanna just be stuck sitting. But as comfortable and easy as that position might be, the oppressor will only keep pressing if they are left untouched. Nothing will change if we are left sitting. So although it is a key part of responding to justice, it cannot be, just as listening can't be the only part, and sitting can't be the only part. We have to move into action. And that's where your sitting will come in handy. It's in your sitting time that 
it may become clear how you should respond to, the, to, to an injustice. God can be pressing on your heart. This is how I want you to respond, which is, again, why it's really important to sit. So Nehemiah, he, he acted by creating a large gathering. He gave a voice to the oppressed, and then he used his position to call out the oppressors. It's important for us to be aware of what our abilities and what our resources are and to ask God, how can I use what you've given me to face the injustices in our world? It could be raising awareness um, through social media, through protesting, through boycotting, through prayer vehicles. It could be um, using your money wisely. It could be through tithing. It could be through donations. It could be making sure that you're an ethical consumer. But my challenge to you is to keep learning, to keep listening, and to keep praying. Learn to keep talking about justice. Learn to seek justice. Learn to act justly. And to just keep trying. In her book, uh, Roadmap to Reconciliation, Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil, she says this. We roll up our sleeves and actively use the talents, abilities, resources, and skills that God has given us. We will make mistakes and we will learn new things about ourselves and, and, and others as we go. This is how we prove our lives of intercultural integrity, not by being perfect or having all the answers, but by taking the risk to get involved and to try. Maybe if, as you've been listening, God has been stirring in your heart, an injustice that you've kind of heard about, but you don't really know too much on. Um, and maybe you're somebody who has had a burning passion and you are fighting for justice in this thing that you have been seeing that is, is an injustice. And my, my challenge to you is to take the model of Nehemiah, to listen, to sit, and act. Maybe you aren't sure where to even start. As all things in your life you should do, the first place you should start is to just pray. Ask God to break your heart for what breaks his. God, what abilities have you given me? What resources do I have? Who are your hurting people? And then listen, sit, and act. You won't be perfect, but in the words of Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil, take the risk and try. Would you pray with me?